today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The investigation continues, of course, about what happened in Ottawa in February with the uh, the insurrection, the the protests, of course, the truckers and and the whole thing, and how it was handled, more importantly. And uh, we're getting some rather disturbing information now for the drims and drabs as some of these documents are being released. Uh, the RCMP apparently feared that serving Mounties were, who might be sympathetic to the convoy protests against the pandemic measures in Ottawa earlier this year might actually be leaking operational plans to the protesters. This is according to an internal threat advisory, which was obtained by CBC News from a, file, a freedom of information request. Uh, how big a problem is that? And because it's not the first time we've heard something like that. Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Michael Kempa, uh, an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. This is not the first time. We've, we've heard about uh, other groups, of course, uh, more specifically, of course, as we're watching some of the, the hearings in, in Washington about the January 6th insurrection uh, in Washington, uh, about, uh, I've got to be careful about wordsmithing here, uh, not association necessarily, but about law enforcement officers who might be sympathetic to some of these right-wing groups. Uh, is, is it a problem? Is it, a, is it uh, something that we need to be concerned about here? And, and if it is a problem, how deeply rooted is it? So it is a problem, and we shouldn't be surprised that there are police officers in, in the OPP, in local municipal police services, and in the RCMP that have various degrees of sympathy for uh, different streams of far-right extremist movements. And we shouldn't be surprised because we have these attitudes in our societies. So police organizations are, particularly the RCMP, are quite hierarchical and very militarized. So you can see that as taking society's attitude, they join the service, and then going through that kind of machinery, over time it will even concentrate those types of attitudes. So we're not talking about thousands and thousands of police officers, but there is a small but important, impactful element within policing with too much sympathy for extremist movements. I, I guess it's a chicken and egg question here. I mean, are they there because of, of that? Or, are, are, you know, are, are these officers that, that became officers and then swung in that direction? Or were they there and they were attracted to police service because of, of the role of police in society? Well, both. In, you're correct. Uh, first of all, people are, with more authoritarian attitudes, are attracted to careers in law enforcement. Uh, and sometimes the military, where this is an even bigger problem, as far as we've documented in terms of um, concentrations of sympathies for far-right movements. It's not to say everybody, obviously, who joins policing has those attitudes, but it does attract a significant number of people like that. But more, perhaps even more impactfully, once in policing services, far-right extremists, and from the left too, from that matter, tend to target state agencies. They value being to take them over very much because they're so important. So there is an ongoing effort by some streams of the far right to infiltrate policing by having their members join, but then having their members join also for the reason of recruiting and pulling more police officers into those dark corners of far right movements. They do it with police organizations, and when they're not successful, they try it with organized crime groups, and when they're not successful, they try it with religious organizations. Far-right movements, not just organizations, movements, will go wherever they have an opportunity to expand. 
and and we've seen evidence of that. I mean, I saw anecdotally in talking to some of the people that covered the uh, the the Ottawa incident, of course, uh, back in February. Uh, there were reports, shall we say, of, of officers who appeared to be sympathetic uh, to some of the protesters there and, and uh, in different circumstances. And, and I guess some people would just kind of write that off and say, well, you know, they're just being congenial. Or, or was there something deeper going on there? It's a little bit of both again. And I mean, we saw that in January 6th, the United States as well. On the one hand, police officers want to reduce, take the pressure off the situation and, and be as convivial as possible to diffuse situations. I'm not too concerned about that. I mean, you see a photo, a little selfie here or there, a couple of ones with police officers, looked like they were sort of um, dancing around with protesters and whatnot. I was more concerned with donations that police officers, some were confirmed to have made to the convoy movement, particularly after it had been declared a an illegal protest. Um, so the same thing in the United States. And it's not so much the individual... Uh, support as it is the implicit bias that creeps into the organization that either people on the far right aren't such a threat or they look a little bit more like us or speak like us as opposed to, say, uh, more um, aggressive protest on the part of racialized groups such as Black Lives Matter, and then just not taking it as seriously in the lead-up with the planning or even reacting as quickly as you might because of that type of implicit bias. So it, it kind of cuts in all those directions. But this is not to take away from the fact that the vast majority of law enforcement are there to do the job to the best of their ability. They did not have the numbers they needed in Ottawa, nor in the Capitol in the United States, at the Capitol building, nor at the border crossings across Canada. So that is the main thing that explains what went wrong um, in the convoy movement, but this is a very complicating factor that is going to frustrate our ability to be ready into the future, because far-right extremism, I'm sorry to say, is not going anywhere. Well, we have seen examples of that in the military, certainly, and, and the, the government seems to have finally uh, started to focus on that and trying to address some of those problems. Uh, is, is it is it fathomable then that they may start look at police services and, and, and suggest that maybe that same sort of investigation needs to take place? I think so, and it's time. I mean, police leadership is not naive. All of the chiefs of police that I've had the privilege to speak to have flatly admitted to me that they're aware that this is a problem in their organizations, and it's not one that they want in their organizations. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about all of the students masters, undergraduates who come to my office, they want reference letters to join police organizations. These are the people that police chiefs want in their organizations because they'll be good police officers who are ready to meet the challenges that are coming down the pipe in our changing society. Good chiefs want to quantify now, do the studies that get a sense of the depth of the problem in their organizations so that we can do something about it. We've got to measure it, in other words, figure out what to do about it and put in place a strategy to weed these things out. Same thing we've been doing with the, with the, with the armed forces. They measured it, strategy in place to deal with the identified known problem, not just the theoretical problem. How much pressure is there? Here's your good cop, here's your, your cop that may have leanings towards some of these, these extremist groups. Uh, is there pressure on, on those who are not of, it, of that ilk to... to to become part of that, to, to go to the meetings, to, to, to talk about this sort of thing? Yes. The people who know the most about reforming policing are good police officers. So 
they see the colleagues that are either at risk of recruitment into those, those dark corners, or they see the officers that they're already too far gone. They're a part of that movement or are overly sympathetic. Now, within policing, as in many organizations, but especially policing, I mean, ratting out your colleagues is a particularly difficult thing to do in policing. But I think that the nature of that problem, the degree to which it frustrates good policing and proper relationships with the community, that networks of good police officers ought to have an avenue where they can direct management, including civilian management of policing, the oversight bodies, in the direction of those officers that are, ca- that are causing the problems. In, in that particular case, though, Professor, is is local o- o- oversight, in other words, within the, the, the police service itself, of, of whatever community we could be talking about here, is that enough to be able to monitor the situation, or, or do they need a, a greater sense of oversight? The existing oversight bodies have all of the legislative authority that they need to do all of this. They lack the understanding, in other words, the training, and the resources to carry this out. So if you look at police services boards, police commissions across Canada, they mean well, they don't have the legal advice they need to do this type of very difficult work, and they don't have the resources they need to go after these types of problems. So, for example, if a police services board has a concern that in Hamilton or Toronto or Ottawa there's a significant problem with far-right infiltration of the police service, that organization, that board, has to have a little bit of money to put into some kind of evaluation of the problem so that with their chief, they can take a look at the exact nature of the problem and come up with a plan to deal with that known problem. If they don't have the resources, it doesn't matter if they have the legislative authority to do that. They'll never be able to do it. Well, and political will, I guess, in situations like this. I, mean, I think if you, when we look at societal problems, I mean, you know, we, we know there are people in our communities, in every community, uh, that have racial biases, the homophobic biases, and, and on and on it goes, any long list of things. And, and would it, I would assume that, that, you know, those things exist within police services, within military, within other areas as well. But can those people with those biases uh, still do their job properly? It depends on the depth and degree of the biases. We all have biases. This is one of the difficulties. It's going to be very difficult for Canadians this fall as we go through the Public Order Emergencies Commission. All kinds of ugly truths are going to come out about our police organizations, our intelligence organizations, our elected levels of government. And it would be easy for all of us to say, well, there's the problem. There's too many biased cops. There's too many... uh, There was a blindness in the intelligence agencies to the threat from the far right. It's because, you know, it's mostly a white... Uh, a white uh, so-called radical group. But these things would not exist in these institutions if we didn't have these attitudes in our society. I mean, one supports the other in that way. So it's about identifying the biases, including our own, and then doing something to get rid of, I suppose what you could call the mildest biases, the implicit ones that we may not even be aware of. That can be trained and must be trained out of police officers. But if you're a sort of a far-gone, explicit racist, well, then there's no place for you in policing or in intelligence or in government or, or really anywhere else in, in civil society. Those are, you know, hate-motivated attitudes where if you act on them, it's a, it's a criminal offense. The other side of this coin, maybe the other side of the spectrum here, uh, is the, is the public's reaction to this. I mean, there are because I've heard some of these comments since these stories have have come out that you know how can we trust the police to to you know 
basically enforce the law uh, if, in fact, you know, they've got a different opinion and, and, and maybe, as you say, could be complicit with the, some of the people that are breaking the law at the same time. Uh, but that really just feeds the narrative that, that as you say, you know, cops are all bad. They've all got their bias. Defund the police. On and on it goes. I mean, it's, it's a pretty slippery slope here, isn't it? It is. And, you know, this is where, to be fair, we, we can't just say that the far right is our only ideological problem in our society. That's why um, CSIS now uses ideologically motivated violent extremism rather than far right, because it can include overly radical elements on the far, far left. I mean, mm-hmm. who, are, who are intent on dismantling whether they see it as the capitalist system or some other uh, rigged system in favor of powerful people. If, if, you're, if you're calling for the dismantling of everything constantly, that is not partic- that doesn't really contribute to the stability of society. So somewhere in the middle, it's very important that state institutions, the police and government, are demonstrated. They do things impartially, and they do things competently, because every time they don't, they hand basically a hammer to people on the far right and the far left, beat the state over the head with to say that this is a bad system and it feeds followers it attra- it helps recruiters on the far right and the far left to attract people into their cause it's not just the cops here it's the elected representatives as well every scandal every issue to do with arrogance incompetence favoritism uh, corruption this is feeding into the ability of people on the far right and the far left to recruit people into movements that are not just protests, but have very bad intentions for democracy. Well, and, and as you say, there's enough of them on both sides that will feed into this narrative, and, and they're, they're fanning the flames, really, uh, and making a bad situation worse by the generalizations you know, the, the, about cops or, but as you say, politicians, it could be anything at this stage. Uh, it's 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 a, a messy situation at this uh, juncture, uh, especially in light of the concerns that we've had about what happened in Ottawa and certainly what happened in Washington on, on January the 6th. Uh, do we... Do we as as a citizenry, do we demand changes here? Do, do we demand better screening of people that apply for those jobs? Uh, how how are how is the rank and file dealing with this? But more importantly, how are uh, the, the the senior commands handling something like this? Do I, they identify them and, and exclude them, or do they just hope that, they, that this doesn't blow up in their face? Well, that that has been the hope that it problem the problem goes away has been our kind of main strategy for the last. 10 or 15 years, we've imagined that the problem wasn't as bad or it may be more of an American problem than than our issue. But what unfolded in Ottawa was so similar to January 6th in the United States, we've got to get over that kind of sort of Canadian arrogance that this is not our problem and deal actively with it. So yes, identify and get rid of from police service those officers who have demonstrated these attitudes through bad behaviors. I'm not talking about an officer who donated 50 bucks to the convoy before it was declared an emergency. Maybe they made a mistake. We can deal with that through ordinary discipline. But if you were actively supporting the convoy after it was declared illegal, well, that's a dereliction of your duty as a police officer. How can you stay on the service after that? Similarly, we in the public have to be paying attention here because arguments, populist arguments from the right or the left, can be very destructive. Politicians who play this game, they may attract votes in the short term, but they'll inherit, in a sense, a fractured kingdom in the end, 
because they will not be able to control these populist forces that they unleash by sort of pandering and undermining confidence in all of our state institutions to people who are pretty angry and confused right now because of what's happened with COVID, uh, the economic inflation situation, disruptions in our supply chains. I mean, people are on edge. And when people are on edge, playing the populist game on the far right or the far left is extremely dangerous. Yeah, but path of least resistance too many times, and we've seen this uh, happen in this country, it's not, as you say, unique to the United States, uh, is to attack institutions, uh, you know, our, our societal institutions, and say they're part of the problem. Uh, and you're right, it's worked uh, for many politicians, and, and you look at the situation that has been created as a result, it's, it's, it's troubling. It's extremely troubling, and that is the issue there. Look at the polling. We had a significant number of Canadians who were supportive of at least some of the objectives of the convoy, if not their methods. So we have to take a look at that and say, this is not like it was just everybody who was there was some sort of fringe protester, and we can sort of just ignore them and fix a few state institutions that we can blame, and the problem will be finished. Every citizen has to sort of be honest and say, I have a bit of a role to play in this, because if I'm too arrogant or dismissive of ideas that I might find ridiculous, I'm pushing people who are on the edge and may be misinformed further in the direction of more and more radical agendas. And the people who are leading those radical agendas are very aware of that process, and they exploit our quickness to laugh at other people as arrogance, which helps them pull more people into their most radical corners. So I guess all is what I'm saying is, is if people, I'm not saying we need to accept views that you find unacceptable, but perhaps not to overly quickly mock them or immediately cut people off who have an idea you disagree with. If they're not that far gone, try to bring them back, engage them in conversation. They're still your friends and neighbors. Professor Michael Kepkin. Professor, uh, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you kindly. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.